Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. Before we get into the main interview, we're opening up the episode with a contribution from Tori Lazar and Allison Belitley, who share a book that inspired them to slow down and embrace the present moment while on a work trip abroad. Here's Tori and Allison. Hi there, you have Tori and Allison here. Hello. We are the co-founders of Content, a brand consulting agency based in New York. We're actually uh, in Tuscany right now for our first ever agency retreat called Get Grounded. Three days ago when Allison and I first arrived to Italy, we took a day and it was all prep work. We were kind of running around. It was a bit hectic. Um, And we decided to take an hour or two to just sit, relax, and have some quiet before the storm. And as I was sitting there, I... uh, brought out a book that I've been reading called uh, I Miss You When I Blink. Essentially, it's a memoir that includes a series of short essays that kind of observe and analyze different parts of herself and different parts of her life. It really just kind of um, talks a lot about how you can be different versions of who you are and to have the freedom to do so. I had an emotional reaction to the phrase because it acted as a friendly reminder to be present just in my day-to-day life, appreciate the bad and the good, Um, essentially learning from my losses, but also my gains. Um, And to think back at the memories fondly and to look forward to the experience that that will come, which ironically tying back to the retreat we are hosting in Tuscany, the theme is self-discovery. And the act of self-discovery is, in fact, it is, in fact, an art. Giving yourself the time to be present, to show up for yourself, center yourself, learn and appreciate who you are um, presently, but also respecting who you were in the past and who you will be in the future. Thanks so much to Tori and Allison for sharing. Again, the book they referenced is I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot. Now, here's my interview with Eric Katz of Seed. True change and innovation starts from within. So when serial entrepreneur Eric Katz endured a devastating loss, she had no choice but to begin truly listening to herself and her body's needs. That's where Seed comes into play. In the company's own words, Seed is an ecosystem of scientists, doctors, innovators, entrepreneurs, and translational storytellers from around the world. As the co-founder and co-CEO, Era spends her days leading a team to realign our thinking about the vital role bacteria plays in the health of both people and our planet. In addition to Seed's research efforts, Era has taken her educational mission one step further by engaging with modern customers through Seed University, their digital partner program that is rooted in accountability. 
In my interview with Era, she spoke more about this essential initiative, her thoughts on the current social landscape, and why slowing down our content creation and consumption is integral to coming up with actionable solutions. Without giving too much away, here's Era. Actually, it's interesting the way you phrase the question because the idea of who you are outside of your work is always one that is like incredibly interesting to me. And it's like, it's a divide and kind of a, a bifurcation, I guess, of, of ourself, kind of capital S, that I think actually doesn't serve us. Um, I've always been so curious about this idea that you have like a professional life and a personal life. And like, we've kind of created these divisions. And so the only reason... I say that I say that is because I I don't think about my life so separately. Um and I think one of the things I'm really proud of is that I do feel that I'm like a pretty integra- integrated person and actually what I do in my role and in the company that I am building and co-creating with our with our team and with our greater community actually in a lot of ways feels like it is my life and that's not because of like the healthy work-life balance, which, you know, of course there are ebbs and flows to that. And I'm certainly not perfect. And I have a three-year-old, so a three-year-old and a startup is not certainly the most conducive combination to the quote unquote balanced life. But, um, I, I enjoy my work so much, but that's not because I don't also do things outside of the office. Um, but actually because I have thankfully gotten to a place where what I do actually doesn't feel so separate from myself. So sorry to give you a very long answer, but I can of course tell you about how much I love yoga um, and hike, you know, being in nature uh, and being with my three-year-old. But um, those are all, all things that actually I try very, very much to integrate into um, into what I do and, and always trying to bring that like most mostly into, into alignment as best I can. We do our events mostly in nature as seed. Um, our events often are family oriented so children and my son can come. And, uh, and even yoga and, of course, like the way we move our bodies is something that we encourage our whole team to do and incentivize them to do. And so um, in a lot of ways, like the things that I enjoy and that I do are, are all actually fairly well integrated. I mean, I think that's such a gift. It is a gift when you can create that. I think it certainly wasn't always um, certainly wasn't always the case, but absolutely is um is something that I think I, after learning about how actually not good that separation can sometimes feel, um, I, I worked very hard to, to create something that feels more integrated, which I don't think most of us don't like feeling that split. And in fact, that's kind of sometimes where, where suffering happens. And so I think it's, it's been a very big journey, but, um, but one that I'm really kind of proud that we're at least partially hacking, hacking our way towards. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And just to backtrack for those who aren't as familiar with your background and your career, it seems that your experiences are at the intersection of design, tech, and now science. So I'm wondering if there's been a certain commonality that you've recognized across all facets of your work. Yeah, I mean, storytelling is really, I think, like design and tech and um and even science to a certain extent, I think those are, those are, I guess those are all meat or I guess design and tech are the mediums. I would say science is the content right now. And storytelling is the through line of pretty much everything that I've done in my career. Um, and that is always how like in different places and different touch points, different channels, different mediums, offline, online, 
UI, UX, um, all the way to long form feature films, like how do ideas and stories kind of express themselves in the world and not just express themselves, but work to either enact change or cultivate community um, and and kind of operate from a a set of shared values, which I think is really all brands. Uh, brands or, or kind of stories often are and so th- yeah so I think storytelling is really it's such a it's such a I o- almost hate to use the word because it's become such a overused term but um, when I look at the through line of almost everything I've done it, it it really is that definitely and I know that before you started seed you were also leading and building spring which was a fashion tech startup and a lot of our listeners probably know that fashion and tech as industries move very quickly. So I'm wondering when you realized it was time for you to sort of take a step back, slow down and and refocus professionally. I had a miscarriage um and I think that was the that was my inflection point. Um, I was also commuting. The other piece of that story was that I was commuting from Los Angeles to New York to to build that company, which I think is not not really tenable, um, or wasn't tenable for me, I should say, as a as a life. The night of my miscarriage, I wrote a um, resignation letter to my co-founders, um, and I just realized that you know it wasn't that that life that my body understood wasn't viable inside of me was a very important inflection point and reflection, I think, of a life that um, that also wasn't viable. And it was really hard as a female in tech to kind of resign from a company that you're the only female co-founder of, and particularly one that at that time was so um, had so much traction and had so much visibility, uh, was obviously a, a, a genuine practice of <laughs> non-attachment and, and getting over myself and, and ego and, and all of that, but really realizing that I think my body was the one that 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 sent me that that signal um and uh and very clearly I'm sure that's something that stays with you and how do you reflect on these experiences when overcoming challenges now Your stuff follows you wherever you go um if you don't really work through it and the idea that you know you can pop up with as many intentional transparent meaningful purpose-filled ideas um and you can execute them really really well but and and build companies i think that everybody loves but at the end of the day if you really want to get to that like really true alignment and meaning and purpose i think it can't be done without kind of a, as i mentioned the integration i discussed before but really that you have to do the work and like even in our company the team reviews me and my co-founder every every quarter. We, we do quarterly reviews for everybody, but then me and my co-founder, we we review ourselves in front of the whole company, um, taking and synthesizing all of the feedback that we get from the team and then publicly talking about all the things we personally need to work on. Uh, and so, I, you know, in a lot of ways, I think we've built vulnerability and that kind of integration into our culture as a way to say that like we really we want to actively work on these things um and we need to be better and we and and that's not a process that really ever stops and so i think in some ways that iterative spirit um and that vulnerable spirit i think is something that does actually lead to to your question to the best to the best work that then carries through that spirit of of, of iteration and of meaning and purpose and mindfulness and and I think a certain kind of vulnerability because like we're doing a lot of things that we have to try and everybody in the world especially on the interweb has lots of opinions 
Um, and so, you know, it is kind of vulnerable to put things out as a brand and, and see if people resonate, particularly when you're trying to do a lot of really new and innovative things. Yeah, but I think it's something worth pursuing. And I actually think a lot about realignment and iteration in my work with Connected Editorial. And I think these ideas have just been opening my eyes to the way content and storytelling exists in our everyday lives. And then you sort of layer in all of the political challenges that are happening and how that affects people's content consumption habits, how they obtain their news and start these conversations. And so thinking about all of this from a brand perspective and helping brands with their content, I've noticed this recurring return to the idea of slow, thoughtful content. And so with the slow content movement in mind, I'm wondering what that idea means to you and what you're building at Seed. Well, I have a mantra with my team that we that we use, which is um, friction is the future. And I think in all of our efforts, which certainly comes out of kind of like a post-industrialized idea that the faster that you can reproduce and scale something, the better. And I think that that idea is, you know, is, I mean, we've learned how actually like, it's interesting. You, you sometimes start, (laughs) you start to, when you really go into science and understand particularly like the constructing of how even science was not immune throughout many decades and and centuries to kind of political or um, societal context, like you see how even the idea of survival of the fittest actually came out of a post-industrial era where like the lens through which we even started to understand biology or evolution was like through this idea um, of like competition. And it's very interesting because a lot of that is being undone now because, and not dissimilar to how fast fashion came about or um, the idea that like something that takes a lot of time, like, like luxury or something that's very high craftsmanship, just using fashion as an example, then the only way it must be accessible to everybody and therefore you should reproduce it very quickly and copy it, um, no matter what it means as a tax to the environment, to the people working in those systems, to um, the people who originally created the idea. And so I think in some ways, like you can look at the same thing with content, which is it's a beautiful idea that technology has democratized the ability for anybody to have a voice and to create content and have the opportunity to be seen. But if you go back and like remember um, the first replication, like when the printing press happened, you know, and all of a sudden you could replicate the Bible, people thought there was a devil uh, in in the machine. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of backlash about the idea of like something being reproduced quickly. Um, and so I think like in some ways, like we, we're a very stupid species uh, that kind of doesn't learn <laughs> very well uh, from our past. And I think content and the slowness of content is a reaction And I think it's a very important one, but I think the more important conversation is who's creating these technologies, who's programming the algorithms that incentivize these systems by which we believe everything must be at scale and speed. Um, Because while it feels like technology is not the same as the things that are hurting our environment, it is fundamentally the same. I think it feels different because pixels, uh, digital storage um, doesn't like reveal itself Uh, the same way you can watch a rainforest burning. Um, But if we don't think that all of this use of electricity and data uh, doesn't have an effect on the environment, I think we're kind of kidding ourselves. Um, But I think, you know, and then then downstream kind of to your question, 
if you think about how then, okay, we have the technology, we have algorithms, we have models of making money that incentivize more and more content and less good content, who stewards the reaction to that? Um, and how can there, how can we use some of these existing technologies um, in a more kind of like ethical and responsible and sustainable way um, where people can find meaning and purpose again and not feel uh, in depth? I think that's where we are now. And I think in some ways, Trump and our political context, absolutely to your point, like really forced people to start deeply questioning everything they read. I, and I wish it was more, um, but that that is very hard to do when 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 the algorithms themselves um, so so clearly self-select for confirmation bias and you're just being served the things that confirm kind of your worldview, which makes it very challenging. Yeah, it's almost like the Wild West now in terms of navigating all of this. Look, when you have someone that need, that that is supposed to be one of the most accountable sources of information in the entire world, degrade, I think, some of the ethics and principles of journalistic integrity. And then beyond that, take an office that should be esteemed and actually should be a place that people trust and start to use that in such divisive ways. Um, I think it just creates like a systemic distrust and maybe that's what has to happen before you go back and trust again. <laughs> um, and maybe that's okay. I think that's, that's kind of where we are now. I think for as crazy and unpredictable as content can be in terms of how it influences people's decisions, I have seen some good come out of it in the sense that brands who have a lot of staying power and, community can start these conversations in the right direction and when I look at seed there's definitely a brand element but there's so much more to the story of what you're doing so how do you balance I guess the quote-unquote brand storytelling with the educational component do you see them as something that coexist most all of our content is education. I mean, we have to balance a lot of things at Seed that those don't happen to be two of the thing, two of the things just because we kind of see them as fairly as as basically synonymous. I think, I think when we write words, um, even if it's about our product, it always comes from this lens of education and the and the stewardship of translating science. It's all done so beautifully, and I also noticed in terms of the language that the phrase within is very present throughout. So I'm wondering, how do you think slow or thoughtful storytelling starts from within as a brand? Well, we are a version 30 Google Doc kind of company, um, which means it starts from, I mean, it's nice that we have science as our uh, compass because science has a very specific methodology uh, not just in terms of how it is performed, i.e. the scientific method. So this notion that you have a hypothesis, construct an experiment, and then you have methodologies by which you observe and you learn and you iterate. But also when science goes out into the world, it goes out into the world through a methodology of peer review. Um, and I think we have that embedded, both the spirit of experimentation and the openness to um, iteration, uh, but also the pieces of peer review that just kind of it, everything goes through so, so many eyes and perspectives before it goes out into the world. And I think when you build process, it's not just saying, oh, we're going to do more longer form pieces. And therefore that means we're doing less short hits and therefore that's slower. But I think actually the production and the friction points that you build in um, to the process itself and the perspectives and this um, element of peer review 
is our friction um, and it's our standard. And so scientists look at it, um, actually scientists that don't do science for us, scientists that just work on scientific translation do that with us. Um, and so we have quite a number of checkpoints internally um, and a lot of iteration um, and a lot of editing and a lot of versions. Um, and I think that's part of what gets seen or at least, at least felt and, and maybe not always articulated. Obviously, you're very sensitive to it. Some people, you know, don't articulate that, but they just say, I love your content. But, you know, I think I think it's not just like how 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 your editorial calendar shifts because you want to make less and better. But it's actually the the making of it and the process of it that I think is so important and how that's integrated and, and embedded culturally so that uh, it's really pretty impossible for someone to press send in our company without something that has a pretty clear process to it. I mean, that's fantastic. And it seems like that's a very natural way that you came to introduce Seed University. And I'd love for you to share more about the inspiration behind this initiative and why it's essential in the age of influencer marketing and just general influence. The the level of misinformation and the and the Dr. Google generation that we are in where um, you know, we we have such distrust for everybody that we so quickly then give our power over and our agency over to people um, who often have absolutely no expertise, um, but who actually probably like in, in many ways mean well, maybe just haven't had the opportunity to, to learn. And influencers, which, you know, we really think anybody is an influencer, whether you, know, you, you have influence over your, your, mom, your mom or uh, your small friend group or um, millions of people on Instagram, we think that there's a level of accountability that we all have when we share a piece of information. Um, and of course, that comes from our scientific DNA. And again, scientific DNA has a methodology for sharing, which is peer review. But we really wanted to say, like, if we know that Instagram, as an example, is one of these platforms where a lot of information is being disseminated with really very little checks and balances and and made even worse by the fact that there's financial incentives to do so, you know, how could we meet them where they are and really be on the platform and, and show that you could learn science and make this stuff so accessible and that transparency and accountability could actually be just as much social capital as sharing the thing um, and, and in, in, in a less integrous way or less consistent with what the science says, for example, um, or perpetuating maybe information that hasn't been ver- verified or, va- or validated, or at least disclosing very clearly that it is anecdotal um, or that you're being paid for it. And so we really wanted to flip it on its head, but also also create an educational experience where it was on the very platform where so many of these influencers already are. And then, you know, which we thought would be much more of service, much easier, actually remove a lot of the friction um, and also show how these platforms could be used like in really meaningful and interesting ways that could actually contribute to more positive and, and integrous information being shared. And then the subversive, I guess, kind of activist part of us was um, also a way of saying like, hey, you know, the, this doing it on the platform where, where it happens felt to us like a really important statement to say um, so much about technology is not just blaming technology, but it's so much of it is like, how is it used um, and how can it be used for good? And that was a really uh, important piece for us. So great. Have you gotten a lot of feedback on it? 
uh, so much press coverage on it, I think between Forbes and Quartz and we were on the cover of Adweek and we were the editors picking Adweek. I mean, we've gotten like a tremendous amount of press coverage from it. Um, in addition to feedback from our, from, from many affiliates and influencers who are incredibly grateful and excited and hashtag accountable, which is kind of what, uh, what we do when people complete the course. Um, but then also feedback from our community and people who are not trying to work with us or partner with us, but who actually just want to go through the course and learn, um, which has been the most fun and really the, the most exciting uh, part of it is just to see how regular people uh, who absolutely have no interest in being an influencer or being an affiliate um, or partnering with us in any way um, have found so much useful information in f- having science served up in a in a format that they are used to consuming um, and that made science feel more palatable and accessible and exciting and entertaining it has been a really fun outcome of it that was not intended and um, but but awesome to see. I'm sure that many more discoveries are yet to unfold. And generally, I think a continuous thread throughout this discussion is that Seed and you and your team are generally posing a lot of questions and conversation starters for consumers and for people who just want to engage in more thoughtful discussions. But I'm wondering if there is any one question that you want people to start asking you more often. Um. It's a great question. You know, I wish we get a lot of a lot of people that ask us questions. Um, I wouldn't say that it's what we would like to be asked more, but I'd say it's how we would like to be asked, which is when you do what we do, you inevitably are going to trigger a lot of people. And health and people's bodies the context of distrust right now in the world doesn't make people curious. It just makes them cynics. And so I think one of the things that we really try to instill, which again goes to our scientific DNA, is I wish that people asked questions with curiosity instead of accusation and listen and then make a decision as to whether or not it's worthy of an accusation. But it, 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 is something that I just wish was happening more in the world. And I see in our, in our customer care inbox and I see how people ask questions. And then when you get to the root of why they're asking it is often because they're in pain or they have um, an illness that hasn't been properly diagnosed or they got in a fight with their boyfriend, <laughs> you know, any number, any number of reasons where they had a bad experience with another company, but there, there we are in a world right now where there is no benefit of the doubt and such diminished curiosity because everybody is guilty until proven innocent. And it's not so much what we are asked, but as much that I wish for us and for the world, that people could just ask questions without an attachment to outcome and without an agenda to, to be curious and to learn and to try and access truth instead of just presuming that somebody needs to prove to you why they're not guilty. And I think in some ways um, we deal with that all the time. Uh, and I, I watch that and I, and I wish that for the world too. I think it comes across in what you're doing just based on what I've seen, but I completely agree. I think tone and trust go hand in hand and hopefully content can be used in more of an accessible way to achieve that. And obviously there's much more that we could discuss on that topic and in this interview alone, but to close out this conversation, I want to ask you one final question that's become 
a central component to each of these interviews, and that is why do you think slowing down our relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I mean, to be honest with you, I I think people don't realize that reading content is consumption. And I think that we are seeing the reduction of consumption in almost all areas of our lives. And I think that's for for whatever reason, um, you know, content is not seen as like a product to be consumed. But really, anything that I think you consume, um, you know, is a is a is a block to creating like your own. You're, you're really like informing your own ideas. You know, we are in a pixel pushing culture, which means that we just push around a lot of other people's ideas. We we regram things. Um, but not many of us are actually creating our own and synthesizing our own ideas and, and, and solidifying our own world perspectives. And as a result, not, not really contributing to solutions, but actually just amplifying the problems. And so like, you know, when I look on my Instagram, all I see are people just posting kids at the border and the fires are on. And I think it does come from like a, I don't know what else to do than to use this channel to, um, offer visibility of a problem that I've identified, I think should be, should have attention on it. But I am not sure that that is how problems are solved um, at the kind of scale that we need them. And I, I would say that thinking about what in the minutes that you could be, that you could consume um, someone else's ideas, uh, not that that's not important. Uh, so I don't, don't want to say reading is not important but just if it's at the sacrifice of never creating um i think that's where we as a as kind of a species i i say that we're going to look back on this period of time as the great distraction um where we were so distracted often by content not even made by humans but by bots and just things that are optimized for algorithms and we weren't thinking of solutions That was my conversation with Eric Katz. There's a lot to unpack from today's episode, so definitely follow along with Seed's groundbreaking innovation online at Seed and Seed University on Instagram and Seed.com. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Slow Stories. We'll be back soon with our next interview. Thanks for listening.